Hello, hello everyone. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of Grappling with Popular Belief. Happy March, happy Women's History Month, happy Social Worker Month. The sun is shining and the weather is getting warmer and it just feels like there is hope in the air. In this month's episode, I'm going to talk about a controversial topic that requires us to channel in that hope and that faith of brighter days coming. I'm asking the question, is addiction a disease? I'm going to start this episode with a little stroll down memory lane. I used to think about addiction very differently than I do today. There was addiction in my family, and it really took a toll on some of our family dynamics, our finances, and all kinds of other stuff. So back when I was working on my bachelor's degree in psychology, I took an intro to social work class, which was kind of surprising because I was not a big fan of uh, social work at the time. I didn't think that I was going to go in the social work route. Um, I really didn't have a full understanding of the field. So anyway, I'm in that class and the teacher or the professor is asking the question, is addiction a disease? I immediately feel my heartbeat increasing, my cheeks getting warm, maybe even a little fist clenching, and my arm shoots up so fast so that I can jump all over this professor and tell her how I know that addiction is not a disease and how everyone makes their own choices. Of course, the professor worked to help me understand why and how addiction is in fact a disease. In that moment, I was not able to hear that. I was not ready to accept that information and I really just wasn't at a point in my life where I was open-minded enough to consider different perspectives. So over time, I continued to do a lot of studying on addiction and the way that drugs and alcohol affect our brains and our bodies, and I also studied it even further after I got my bachelor's degree when I pursued an addiction counseling certificate. Through all of that, I learned a lot and I definitely changed my perspective over time. I often think back to that moment in class where I was feeling so indignant, so exhausted, and so hurt from the toll that addiction had taken on me and my family. Living with someone who is struggling with substance dependence is extremely difficult. Brain-altering substances literally change the way that you think, feel, and behave. So when a loved one is affected by this, they are no longer that fun, bright, charming person that you enjoyed having in your life. People's behaviors may become dark and manipulative, and you might be left feeling the grief of who that person once was. And oftentimes, that pain turns into anger. It turns into frustration, and I may be a little biased, but I do think that oftentimes people who feel strongly that addiction is not a disease are people who are similar to me, feeling angry with someone in their life, struggling with addiction, or, you know, I think often people just don't have a full understanding. And I also think that there is this black and white thinking that I've mentioned before in my podcast episodes where 
people hear that addiction is a disease and they think that people are saying addiction is the same thing as other diseases like diabetes or cancer and people become really frustrated because they don't feel like that's fair that someone can develop a disease that may or may not be a consequence of certain behaviors that they've had can be compared to someone who starts using substances and then becomes addicted. However, there are a lot of things happening in our brain that can make us predisposed to developing an addiction, just like there are things that can make us predisposed to getting diabetes or getting other types of illnesses. And I am going to talk about this more in detail when I invite my guest speaker of the month. Today, I am actually going to be bringing on a physician who I worked with in the past who has decided to focus his career on addiction medicine. I think that he has some great information to share, and I'm excited to introduce you all to him. And without further ado, I'd like to introduce you to Dr. Matthias. Hey, Alyssa, how are you? Good, good. Thank you so much for coming on to talk with us. Well, thank you for having me. I appreciate the invite. Oh, absolutely. I'm very excited. Dr. Matthias, tell us about your credentials and some of your work experience in the realm of addiction. Sure. I was actually a psychiatry resident center. That's how we have connected in our, in our past life and how we know each other. And uh, so while I was in Massachusetts, I really started delving into the world of substance use disorders. We saw it everywhere in our life, and especially in the midst of the opiate epidemic, um, people coming into the ERs, our psych unit just with an opiate use disorder or alcohol use disorder, things of that nature, that, that really got me interested in focusing more on substance use disorders to specializing in that as well. Um, so from there, after I finished uh, residence in psychiatry. I went to pursue my addiction psychiatry fellowship at Emory University in Atlanta, Georgia. It was a year fellowship. I had a great experience down here. Uh, I learned a lot and really wanted to focus my, at least early stages of my career as an attending psychiatrist solely on addiction work, which is why I joined faculty at Emory University in July, 2020. So I'm now uh, an, an addiction psychiatrist. I'm double board certified in general psychiatry and addiction psychiatry. I work within two clinics at Emory. One is our adult addiction clinic, and the other is, um, which is pretty unique, our child and adolescent substance use clinic. There aren't a lot of those clinics in the country, and I'm really, really happy to be a part of that over here at Emory. That is such a cool whole spiel. Like, mm -hmm. for one thing, I think it's awesome that you are board certified in addiction psych in addition to general psych, because mm -hmm. I feel like I just, I haven't really interacted with a lot of uh, practitioners who are, who are certified in, in uh, addiction or psychiatry. And it's just cool to know that that's a thing and people are doing that. You know, it, it really, it really took off. I would say over the past ten years or so, it's actually becoming one of the more competitive fellowships within within psychiatry right now, just because 
our, our whole world is being turned upside down uh, with, with opiates and, and also the, the pandemic. I mean, COVID, COVID has caused a lot of our substance use cases to rise and, and um, I, I wish it was unexpected, but it was kind of to be expected because COVID led so many people to feel isolated and by themselves and, and where are they gonna take comfort, but within the substance too, so. Yeah, oh, definitely, that totally makes sense. Joe, you, or Dr. Matthias, yeah, I feel like call I, me, please call me Joe. <laughs> uh, this sounds weird when you call me Dr. Matthias. <laughs> I feel like I should though, you know, it's like exciting to get those credentials. <laughs> um, so share uh, some of your knowledge about like the brain and body science that goes on when someone's dealing with addiction or substance dependence. Right. So actually, maybe before I get into kind of the whole neuroscience behind it, I'll, I'll, I'll share with you kind of one of the things that made me think more about, about addiction as a disease process, too. Yeah. Um, so you know, before I even was considering psychiatry or even addiction psychiatry, I, I never thought about addiction as being a disease, too. And it wasn't until some of my patients were telling me, Joe, like, Dr. Matthias, why, you know, people just don't choose to live their life this way. They don't choose to steal from family members and, and, and grandparents and, and friends to, to, um, to use out of enjoyment. You know, it's, it's, it's really something really powerful there. So that's what got me thinking into more along the lines that addiction is a disease process too. Like who would really want to choose this life, right? So, so there are, there, there are a number of neurotransmitters or brain chemicals in the brain, which, which reinforce that addiction to one of the big ones is dopamine. Mm-hmm. So when, when people use a drug or, or alcohol, um, it goes into their system and triggers a flood of dopamine or the pleasure chemical of the brain. And, and that's what makes it such a powerful addiction from a neurobiological point of view too. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, that gets reinforced and, and you also start to develop a tolerance and dependence and that's physiological as well as psychological to some degree. Um, but, but your body is becoming physically dependent on that substance. Mm-hmm. Your, those, those some dopamine receptors, they're getting destroyed when you continue to use over and over again, which means you have to use more and more of that substance to get that same level of high or pleasure or enjoyment out of it, you know, which is when unfortunately, that's when they typically connect with people like me, um, you know, when it gets out of control or spirals out of control. So it, it certainly affects the brain to uh, a, a number of degrees, right? Most yeah. importantly with the neurotransmitters and, and, and readjusting that too. And that comes along with sobriety, right? Or abstinence. Um, there have been plenty of studies that showed, that showed um, fMRIs uh, of, of individuals with a substance use disorder and the dopamine receptors aren't highlighted up there because they are destroyed. But after abstinence for a year or two or three years, those dopamine receptors start to come back too. And so the brain is an amazing, an amazing, amazing organ. Yeah. And, uh, and it, it, it can really regenerate itself too with sobriety, with abstinence. Yeah, I love that you say that because that is like a nice little piece of hope because I think it is when someone's really struggling with addiction and they do get into that 
that stage of addiction where they really just can't find happiness or comfort through any other way because those dopamine receptors are so damaged from using all of those different chemicals. Uh, you know, it's, it's hard to believe that they'll, their brain will go back to normal or go back to mm-hmm. a, a more effective functioning, but it, it will, which is, mm-hmm. you know, nice, nice hope to give people. Mm-hmm. It's also really nice to have you confirm some of the stuff I know about addiction. Cause it's like, oh, you know, a doctor saying it. So I feel smart that I, I know these things. <laughs> yeah. well, you know, it, like we all have to start somewhere in learning about, about things too. Right. And, and trying yeah. to understand addiction as a disease process, because some people, they don't believe that too, you know, mm-hmm. that they believe it's self-will and, and it's their choice and to some degree it is, but, but, and, and the way I like to describe it to, to, to my patients is that, you know, if you have this genetic predisposition, we can talk more about that part too, of, of, of this family history of addiction, then you are more prone to picking up that substance too. Or if you have a history of depression and anxiety, you are more prone to picking up a substance as well. So it's, it's, it's more than just a choice is what I tell people, you know, that this is, this is something that we really need to tease apart as to what led you to wanting to use. Yeah. And that's part of what I do. So. Yeah. I think that's huge. I think in my own learning, because I, I didn't think it was a disease. I had a family member who struggled with addiction and I was so angry and I was like, it's not a disease. It's their choice. They're terrorizing, you know, the family and started to realize that this people are using because most often they are dealing with some trauma history or depression mm-hmm. or bipolar disorder or something that is already happening in their brain that they're trying to soothe and they're trying to find ways to cope with it. And sometimes those substances work really well for those things, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so when you talk about, you talked about tolerance a little bit, can you talk a little bit about withdrawal and how that really kind of feeds addiction? Yeah, no, it's a it's a vicious cycle too, and and I, I think if you were to talk to anyone who uses substances, at some point it becomes less about the high mm-hmm. and more about just maintenance and want and them not wanting to feel sick too. Right. So if you're looking at um, the two substances that come to my mind where the withdrawals are pretty prominent are one alcohol and two opiates as well Mm. so so we're thinking about alcohol usually after uh, a good six to eight hours after their last drink they start to develop some kind of withdrawals it's increased anxiety some stomach upset um, irritability Mm -hmm. Uh, those are all things that kind of trigger someone to wanting to drink again to to kind of soothe those symptoms and obviously the the, the shakes or the tremors are, are another big withdrawal sign that you would see with, with an alcoholic too. Mm-hmm. Um, so that kind of leads to this vicious cycle about, I wanna stop, but I feel really crappy and I can't stop in this moment. A drink will definitely help me feel a little bit better too. Right. And honestly, the, 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 the same goes with, with opiates as well, you know, and, and um, they, they would feel the same way. You know, that's why he, when you're talking to someone who has an opiate use disorder, mm-hmm. they, they will find a way to make sure that they won't feel sick too. Yeah. Because mm-hmm. it is, 
it, you know, I've, I've heard it described as probably the worst flu of their life. You yeah. know, it's really, 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 really uncomfortable. And, and that unfortunately is what leads them to wanting to use and potentially overdose too. Yes, yes, definitely. Yeah, I think that's so important, especially when we talk about things like alcohol. I think that there's so many people who don't quite realize how habit forming something Mm -hmm. that's so commonplace in our society is and some of the seriousness. I've known people in my life who have used such huge amounts of alcohol and they don't realize that it's actually like really dangerous to stop using alcohol. Mm-hmm. Like if you're drinking all day, every day, you, you really shouldn't just stop using it. And a lot of the times they, they don't successfully because they get to the point, like you mentioned, they're so uncomfortable and they know a drink will help them, but it's also medically not safe for people yeah. who are dependent on alcohol to stop. Right. No, absolutely. I mean, especially with alcohol, it's, it's, it's a life-threatening withdrawal. If yeah. they were to go cold turkey, if they have been drinking for 20 years straight, they went cold turkey, mm-hmm. they can absolutely have a withdrawal seizure and die. Too. Absolutely. No. Yeah, definitely stuff that I wish more people knew about because it's, it's important stuff. This is kind of a tough question. I don't know. Um, what has been difficult for you in working in addiction? that that is a tough question and and tough not because I I I think I have a decent answer to that question but tough because it's it's evolving as as I as I continue my practice too Mm um I think one of the most humbling things for me to learn in my very short career so far is your goal for an individual doesn't necessarily mean that it's their goal for themselves too Mm, right. that's so, so, so that was I think that was difficult for me to understand when I was first in residency and seeing people come in after an overdose and uh and continue to use right you know they, they almost died and then they would go back out and want to use again mm-hmm. and and you know it was that was difficult for me to grasp you know that Maybe some people, their goal is not to completely stop using. Maybe it's to stop using opiates, but it's not to stop using alcohol. Maybe stop using alcohol, but not stop using weed, right? And try to figure out where they're at with their disease and with mm-hmm. their um, with their goals and try to meet them where they're at too. So what, what I usually have, what I've learned with time is to use motivational interviewing. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's, that, that could be really powerful. And the premise behind MI or motivational interviewing is that you help a patient or an individual come up with their goal on their own mm-hmm. by helping them create their own discrepancy, right? Reviewing kind of the pros and cons of their use. Mm-hmm. The pro is that they feel good for maybe an hour or two or three. The con is that I've overdosed a number of times. I could die from this. Mm-hmm. Um, it's affected the, my, my relationships with my spouse or my parents or my siblings, helping them kind of assess their own pros and cons with their use and letting that guide their motivation for treatment. I love that. That's, that's so important. I think that's important in any human service role, we have to remember that. And I mean, I struggle with this sometimes I work with young kids. So, you know, 
it's extra hard sometimes with young kids because we as adults have a tendency to want to tell young kids what they should do and what they should want and you know all that kind of stuff so um you know even working with adults especially adults who are struggling with addiction I think it I think it can be hard to not want to just be like <laughs> you know you're you're you just like punched your mom in the face to like get a purse like what are you doing you you don't want to use anymore like <laughs> that should be your goal but it is so important to meet them where they're at and understand that if you go in with your own agenda and try to try to fix it it's it's not necessarily going to work out yeah you know and, and you kind of brought up a an, another good point in in uh when when family becomes involved as well right or yep. or lack of family mm -hmm. when it comes to certain cases too and and to no fault of the family to some degree because they the bridges have been burned in, right. in, in, in in some in some degree um with, with with some individuals too so it it becomes difficult because sobriety or excuse me um addiction is, is such an isolating disease right mm -hmm. you know yeah. they people are kind of pushing away other people and just being alone with their addiction and and it it, it could be a really lonely place um so so that has been probably one of the more difficult things and in, in trying to tr treat patients is when they don't have a support system on their side right yeah. and and they are kind of alone with this and they don't know what to do and it's pretty easy to call up your buddy who's been supplying um your, your drugs versus kind of taking action and, and, and kind of building a support system, going to meetings, finding some kind of sober support network. Yeah. Yeah. No, I know when I've worked with people who are struggling with that, it's, that's always one of the biggest things is it's like, if they don't have sober supports who are cheering them on and helping them mm -hmm. through it, it's going to be really hard to, because they're in your office for however long, but then they leave and they're in the big world and there's lots mm -hmm. of people and lots of triggers and, all kinds of stuff going on. So it's, it can be a huge challenge if they don't have those good supports. Mm -hmm. What about what, what's most rewarding for you in addiction? Yeah, they, the outcomes, right? I mean, um, I have, uh, I have a couple of individuals right now who, um, one, one kid is 24 years old now, and he's, uh, he's about three years in recovery and he was I mean he was he, he he almost died and he's been admitted to to um to the hospital a number of times after uh after overdoses and stuff but he he found a recovery network mm -hmm. and and is really involved with that and now he's finishing up his bachelor's degree applying to medical school you know wow. he, he actually wants to be a psychiatrist which I thought is really really cool That's too so, cool. so like cases like that are are awesome and great to hear. Also the cases of people who have used for 30, 40 years and, and are now starting a new chapter in their life mm -hmm. that, that doesn't include a substance, right? And, and they are actually feeling their emotions versus numbing them. Yes. And, mm -hmm. and their relationships are, are, are flourishing in their life and they have they have a good, a good, a good work life too, and uh, and their kids are a part of their life again. Yeah. So that is a very, very cool part of my job, and and that is kind of what drives me to kind of keep doing what I do. That's awesome, and I know that that I mean I can totally relate to that. I think that's 
a lot of people who work in our field or field similar to ours that having those positive outcomes and seeing the way people transform is just so amazing and being with them on that journey is so cool. Uh, what else helps you kind of take care of yourself in a profession that can kind of come with a lot of vicarious trauma and a lot of stress? Yeah, so that is a good question and something that I'm still trying to figure out to myself, you know, and um, I, I think one thing that I found really helpful is to um, is to talk, is to talk to your colleagues, right, is to not be alone in this. I have, I mean, even even as, as an established physician now, I have dedicated supervision time with, with my colleagues to, to talk about cases, to kind of talk about my own emotions behind them. And, and I think that has been incredibly important and something that was actually instilled in me when I was in residency training at, at BMC with, um, with, with my mentors uh, in, within psychiatry who always told me, Joe, you're, you're never alone in this. You should never be alone in this. Um, you know, reach out to your colleagues and, and have them be a part of, of your life too. Um, so, so not being alone has been really, really helpful for my own mental health and helping me do what I do on a day-to-day -day basis. That's awesome. Yeah, I think supports are so important and mm -hmm. it's especially important right now because we're all kind of more separated than usual. So yeah, staying sure. connected is huge. Mm -hmm. What are some things you might want to say to listeners who are currently struggling with addiction or who have like a loved one or friend that's struggling with addiction? Yeah. I guess we'll start with the people that are struggling with addiction, right? Mm -hmm. I think I shared earlier that addiction is a very isolating disease. Mm -hmm. And as tough as that is, or as, excuse me, as easy as it is to stay isolated, mm -hmm keep talking to people, reach out to people, ask for help. And I know, I know there's a lot of stigma that comes along with addiction. And that's something that I'm trying to, I'm, I'm trying to destigmatize getting treatment for addiction because still when people hear I'm an addiction psychiatrist, they're like, I don't have an addiction. You know, I don't need to see you. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm okay. I'm fine. Yeah. Um, but, but in reality, that's, that's really not the case. Right. And, and I feel like one of the barriers in people getting treatment is the stigma behind getting addiction treatment, right? Oh, I'm a junkie. I know I, you know, I'm, I, I think uh, that there's, there's a quite a stereotype of what a person with addiction look like. And I can assure you that is not the case from the patients that I treat at all. So an advice would be that it does, it can get better, it can get better. And also keep talking to people, stay open to getting help too. And, and um, you know, I, I, I recognize from the time that we worked together to Alyssa that, that, you know, sometimes it might not happen on the first try or the second try or the third try, right. but maybe it's just a matter of a stroke of luck and you meet the right person that you connect to and you feel supported by, and that's what helps get you through too. Yeah. I'm so glad that you said that, especially with trying to find the right provider. And I mm -hmm. always push this with mental health too. And it's just as important with addiction that if you're going to see providers and it just is frustrating and you're not clicking with them, keep trying. There's mm -hmm. lots of different options out there and to keep talking to people and keep trying because it's, you know, it's worth it. And yeah. 
right now. And I figured as, as a therapist, you would probably appreciate that too. I try to tell my patients, if you don't connect with a therapist, that's okay. Right. There are other ones out there too, you right, know, right. and it, it's just a matter of uh, about being a good fit with one another too. Exactly. Right. Right. That's so huge. Mm-hmm. And then what about people who have family members? Right. So, um, there, there is a notion of don't enable your loved ones. And I, I, I agree to an extent of that notion too. Mm-hmm. I do. Um, but I will also say that keep in communication, mm-hmm. you know, don't, don't lose, don't just block them out of your life forever. Maintain your boundaries. Boundaries are important to maintain, mm-hmm. but just don't cut someone out completely. Like I said, addiction is such an isolating disease. They already feel lonely as it is. They already feel like a failure to some degree. Mm-hmm. For sure. Right. And, and just to not have that lack of support or that person to be able to call in the middle of the night um, or to know that there might be someone who would pick up that call at least. Right that can be really demoralizing for a lot of people. Um, with that said, and I wanna emphasize this too, because I do think it is important for families to set boundaries too, yeah. of what they're, you know, to, to not enable uh, a, 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 a child or a spouse to continue doing what they are doing, because that's important as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but don't give up. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah, I was really happy when you said boundaries, because I, I think those two things have to go hand in hand mm-hmm. so much, like s- staying in communication is so important. Because like you said, I mean, if someone's struggling with an addiction, and they lose all their supports, it's it's going to drive them deeper into their addiction, it's going to make them feel more isolated. And it's going to be harder for them to work through it without people cheering them on and kind of being there for them. So but having those boundaries are crucial because you also don't want to be so angry and frustrated because you're picking up their call every night in the middle of the night when they're intoxicated or whatever, that you are just angry and you're not, not taking care of yourself. So I think that's, that's a great point. Okay. Well, that was pretty awesome. Thanks so much, Dr. Matthias or Joe. Yeah. Right. (laughs) Yeah. It's still weird for me to hear that too, Alyssa. So uh, we go way back when you knew me as a very green first year psychiatry resident who was scared to order anything. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Those were, those were some good times. You know, I really, I actually loved that you brought up the fact that there is a push to talk with your colleagues because in that job, there was definitely a good feeling of community and working alongside psychiatric residents was a huge, Mm -hmm. like, I always think of it as a huge privilege that I had because you guys all had so much knowledge that you were bringing in and seeing you all learn and grow and do all of these interventions with patients. It was just really, it was cool. So I appreciate you. Yeah, no, I, I appreciate you too, Alyssa. You know, it, it was you know, working on the inpatient psych psych units and collaborating uh, with therapists like you uh, was, was so important for me because that has been such a learning experience for me too, to make sure that you're continuing to collaborate with therapists as well throughout yeah. all this. You know, medications are one piece of it, but it's not everything. 
and uh, and it's it's a privilege and honor to work with you as well. Oh well, thank you. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks for being on with me today, Joe. All right. Thanks, Alyssa. To my listeners for tuning in this month, I hope that you enjoyed this episode on addiction. Of course, we only just touched kind of the tip of the iceberg when it comes to addiction. There's a lot more to talk about here, but I like to keep my episodes short, as you know. So if you have questions or if there's more that you want to learn about, please feel free to reach out to me. I'm always happy to share what I know, and if there's stuff that I don't know, then I can try to point you in the right direction. Stay tuned and I will talk to you next time.